Christmas is an, is an awesome time of year. It's a time of hope. It really is. And uh, that new year thing coming up. Getting into a bit of a, a Christmas sermon series here. And this is not the, the one I had scheduled for today. I'll, I'll be right up front. This is not the one I had scheduled. For reasons I'll probably make clear later, I had something else scheduled for today, but it got put off for good reasons. And so I'm, it may sound weird, but I'm starting, I'm starting out of the block here, a Christmas sermon on, from Revelation. We're used to Matthew, right? We're used to Luke. We're used to shepherds and angels and Joseph and Mary and Herod and the Magi. Not a dragon. Some of you have heard this story, but the Christmas story is John gives a totally different perspective on what's going on when Jesus is born. And perspective is hugely important. How many of you have been to Arrowhead Stadium and watched Chiefs game? Okay. The only time I was in Arrowhead Stadium was on the field at the 20-yard line watching U2 in concert. Please don't judge me for that. But there was... <laughs> It was one of my son's, my son and I's bucket list things. I got to go see you two in, in, in person. So I was on the field. That perspective, though, um, some people paid really big money to sit up there. And I'm like, why would you do that? I'm down here, right in front of Bono. You know what I'm saying? Um, I can see his, you know, spit coming out of his mouth. If you could pay bigger money to see a football game from the sidelines, if you could see a more perspective if you were, like, say, a judge or a referee, if you could be in the line of scrimmage, would that be a different perspective on that game? It would. It would be a way different perspective if you were in, like, a space shuttle or the space station looking down on Kansas City. You couldn't see a whole lot of it, but you could see a really big picture. That's a different perspective on that ball game. John gives us a way different perspective on the Christmas story than Matthew or Luke do. And this is important for us to see because it's, un, it's an unveiling. It's a, a revealing. That's the name of the book, Revelation. It's a revealing of reality. What would happen if God would unveil so that you could see a different perspective, your present reality? What would happen if you had, say, a way to see with your eyes spiritual realities that normally we don't even think about because we're not able to perceive them what if you could what if you could really see the angelic or the demonic what if you could tell simply by looking or hearing the evil activity that's even in this room among us presently whether it's, it's a, you could see somebody's mind or heart just gripped with fear. And you know that's not of the Holy Spirit. You know that person's under attack from the evil one. And you can see that just gripping the life out of them. What if you were able to see temptation? What if you were able to see this, this evil presence on the back of somebody else just pounding them in the back of the head with, with temptation? with opportunity, with shame, with accusation? What if you could see that with your eyes? Would you want to do something more about that? I really believe that Mark Moore is true when he says, if we could see that, we might take more seriously the battle we're in. And what if, what if John gives us 
that kind of vision of Bethlehem where we can see things that Matthew and Luke don't give us pictures. Uh, for, for thousands of years before that silent night, the serpent in Genesis 3 has been working hard to throw off God's plan. He's been very successful in getting God's people to rebel, to break faith from their creator, to show contempt for the covenant that he made with them. God isn't, God isn't up there breaking a sweat going, oh, I wonder how we're going to get out of this one. You know, in 30 minutes you'll find out, you know, everything's all going to be happily ever after. No, that's not how he works. He is faithful. He is powerful. And he's relentless in his plan, in his designs for redemption. His power is enduring and eternal. Many people read through Revelation and it makes them fearful. I, I'm gonna, on a mission to, I, I think John's intention he, for his original readers and for us is courage and victory. It is endurance. Could anybody here use a little more endurance? Just, just for the next like three weeks, maybe. <laughs> you know, get me through the end of the year. But I think the long view really is a little more where we're at. This is what we need. John's renditions, his visuals of evil are not flimsy and they're not weak. They're real and they're strong, but they are not to be feared or dreaded as some of us do. So Revelation 12, open up your, your Bibles if you got it, or turn on your mobile device. We're going to walk through a bit of Revelation 12 and the Christmas story today. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars on her head. This is a very prominent person. Very honored in this. And she's pregnant and cried out in pain. She was about to give birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now, we've talked about this before. When we see this, we're not supposed to see a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. What we're supposed to see is red symbolizes evil. What we see is a dragon is obviously going to be explained in our text as Satan, the accuser, the adversary, the evil one. This seven business is completion and perfection. He's, he is the horns, horns <laughs> on head is always symbolizing strength, strength. Ten is complete. He has a lot of strength. Seven crowns. What do crowns represent? Authority. Royalty. He's got power. And he has power on the earth. And he had some power in heaven. This, is a, this sign appeared in heaven. So this thing is not to be messed with. It's not flimsy and weak. This, this manifestation of evil is standing in front of the woman who was about to give birth. Why? So that he might devour her child the moment it was born. 
she gave birth to a son, verse 5, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And immediately, if you're a Jewish reader, your mind goes to, wow, that's Psalm chapter 2. Man, that's a messianic psalm. This is the Christ. He's talking about the birth of Jesus Christ. Who's the woman? Everybody. Mary. If not Mary, Israel, maybe both. But this is clearly talking about the birth of Christ and this evil presence, this dragon wants to eliminate it now, right upon its birth. But what happens? Her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Fail number one, not fast enough, dragon. Wasn't strong enough to eat the baby, couldn't catch him. Herod couldn't catch him, right? Satan himself tried to tempt him. The Jews couldn't trap him. Pilate condemned him. He was killed but not destroyed. Death had no hold on him. And God raised him up. God raised him up to the throne. Jesus is the one mentioned here. So he's not fast enough to get the baby. Verse 6, the woman fled to the desert where, to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of 1260 days. It seems like I remember part of the Christmas story where the angel tells Joseph, grab the baby and the mother and take them away. Herod wants to kill him. Herod wants to kill the boy. Where'd they go? And they went to Egypt. Fail number two, dragon wasn't fast enough to get the woman. Verse seven, and there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. But, catch this, he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. And here we have him defined. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. There's no questioning who we're talking about here. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Remember the last words of Christ here on this earth, all, of, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. All the authority of Christ, been powered, kingdom of our God, right here. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Talking about all the believers here. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. The devil is ticked off. Verse 13. When the dragon saw he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the desert where she'd be taken care of, out of the serpent's reach. And from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. That's an interesting picture but it's interesting to me, too, that Romans 8 talks about 
the earth itself wanting to be renewed and redeemed. It groans. This creation itself groans to be made right again. And God uses even dirt to battle evil. The earth swallows up the attack. And fail number three, still not fast enough. In verse 17, the last verse here, the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Now, who are the rest of her offspring? Now we get a little different picture of who this woman might also be. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He can't get to the baby. He can't get to the woman. So the dragon turns his attention to those who obey God's commandments and to the testimony of Jesus. And my first thought was, hey, that's me. And my second thought was, uh-oh. Right? This, this battle, we're at war. The last verse here in chapter 12 merges right into the first verse of chapter 13. And it says, The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. See, he knows he's been kicked out. He's standing there. He's licking his wounds. He's been thrown out of glory. He's been humiliated and kicked. He is down, but he is not out. And he stands by the shore of the sea. Now, more often than not, not just in Revelation, but in many other scriptures, when the sea is mentioned, it's referring to a place of chaos, disorder. This is Genesis 1 language. This is uncharted. This is unfamiliar to humans. This is filled with danger. The dragon wasn't vacationing on a beach somewhere to get his second wind and get an idea about what to do next. He, Listen, the dragon goes first where our fears are deepest. I was writing this, and that came out of onto the screen, and I went, that's exactly right. I don't even know where that came from. Thank you, Holy Spirit. There you go. Merry Christmas. The dragon goes first where your fears are deepest. And he summons chaos and fear and uncertainty and intimidation and throws it at us in fury. Because he wants to destroy us. Why did Jesus come? To destroy the devil's work. Satan's strategy is outlined in, verse, in, in chapter 13. The beast out of the sea, the beast from the land. And I'm not really going to get into, there's a lot there. But Satan's game plan has always been to one, deflect our obedience and to falsify our witness. He wants to intimidate us into disobedience. He wants to lure us into a false version of who God is, a false version, a superficial version of what Christianity is. He has the appearance, this, this beast from, this, from the earth, he has an appearance of a lamb. He sounds like a dragon. Let him who has ears, let him hear. 
He imitates Christ, but he's anything but. It's a cheap imitation of Christianity, and if we think we're immune to it, we're fooling ourselves. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Reversed Thunder, says the goal of this beast is not the black mass, but the mass market. It's not satanic ritual. It's commercialism. Merry Christmas. It's a cheap version of what the real thing really is. Satan masquerading as an angel of light. And many are duped into thinking that manner of worship seems right, but it rings hollow. He gets into the mark of the beast, and I, you know, there's all kind of stuff about that going on. I'll just tell you, it's not a microchip, and it's not a barcode, and it's not any, any of that. But it's, it's what we think and what we do. The hand and the forehead. Our thoughts and our actions. It takes away our primary focus of love for God and His glory. And it makes a religion a commodity. Something we participate in. Something I can benefit from. I get my money's worth. And I can show God how blessed I am. It's a Christian spin on the American dream. It's deception of the worst kind. But it's the song here in chapter 12 that I want to come back to. Salvation has come. Power and the kingdom are established. Jesus has all authority. The accuser has been kicked out. Jesus said he saw Satan fall like lightning. The Christians have overcome him by the blood of Jesus and by how they live, the testimony of their witness. It's good news for heaven and all who live there. It's, and it's bad news for the earth and all who live there because he's loose. This dragon is loose. And I always want to ask God, why did he, why'd you throw him here? <laughs> you could have thrown him like a Neptune or something. You, why, why here? He's raging mad, and he knows he only has so much time. We are presently living in the now, but the not yet. It's, it's kind of similar to what I thought of. We just had, um, is it the 69th anniversary of, of Pearl Harbor? Just the other day? 70, I'm sorry. I'm not getting my math here right. December 7th. It's been a long time ago, but we remember after that, on the other side of that war, D-Day, June 6, 1944, we live between D-Day and V-E Day, or V-J Day as it was known. Almost 12 months. June 6, 44 to May 8th of 45, the unconditional surrender of the Germans. There was time between the beaches of Normandy and where Nazi Germany was dealt a death blow by the Allies. And there's time between the cross and the empty tomb and the second coming of Christ. We're still in the battle. There were still casualties mounting. And Satan will be judged. He's been beaten, but then he'll be completely and utterly dismissed and sentenced to eternal torment. He knows that time is coming, and he's intent on taking as many people with him as he can. The dragon tried to stop Christmas, but he wasn't strong enough. 
So now he's in the business of stopping Christians. And he still isn't strong enough. He's strong, but he's not strong enough. Several years ago, I, I didn't warn my girls first service. It's the rules of a preacher. You really shouldn't tell stories on your kids without their permission. But it's okay if they're little. Even when they're older now. But when Allison was th- about three years old, I had her with me at the church there in Galesburg, and it was our um, tradition there to put the nativity set, a really a, a large nativity set, on our communion table right up front. And I knew I was going to be preaching on this passage. And so I went to a friend of mine who ran a store in Parsons, all kinds of really interesting things that she sold there, one of which was a pewter dragon about this long, painted all kinds of colors with you know, little jewels or bubbles all over it. And it was, it was one of those really cool-looking dragons. And I said, hey, can I borrow that for a while? And she's like, what for? <laughs> so I told her what I was going to do with it. She said, fine, take it, just bring it back next week. And um, so I brought it, took it to the church building, and I set it right there in the communion table in the nativity set, head open, tongue coming out right at the baby Jesus' head. And Allison, as a three-year-old, looks at this and knows something is not right. She said, why did you put that next to baby Jesus? And I said, well, I'm telling a Bible story next Sunday, and, and this, is a, this is a Bible story. Well, she believed me, and, uh, and she said, does the dragon eat the baby Jesus? And I said, no. And she looked relieved, but then she said, why not? Like, what kind of question is that? But why not? That's, a, that's what every three-year-old asks. And I remembered the Spirit prompted me in this study, and I remembered that verse, and I, I just told her in a way that any three-year-old could understand, he's not strong enough. Oh, okay. And then she skips away, goes to play. It was later on that day or, or, the, or the next day, I had all three girls with me in the building, and Kara's seven and Kathleen's five um, and Allison's three, and they all see it. And this greatly concerns my older two. They, they don't know what to do with this, and, they, and one of them said, who put the dragon in the nativity set? Who put the dragon next to baby Jesus? And I said, well, I did. They're looking at me like, I'm crazy. Why? Why did you do that? I told them the same thing I told Allison. I'm telling a Bible story on Sunday, and it's a different Christmas story than we're used to hearing, maybe. But I'm going to talk about this. Well, Kathleen was really worried. This really troubled her. She didn't know what to do with this. And she she asked me the same, does the dragon hurt baby Jesus? And before I could say a word, Allison piped up and said, no, he's not strong enough all the confidence a three-year-old has. He isn't strong enough. She understood that by faith. We say we, we believe that, but we're wondering. As powerful as the devil is, he isn't. He wasn't strong enough to take out the baby Jesus. He can't take out you. As long as you remain in Christ, you're, you're covered in the blood of the Lamb, and you bear the word of the testimony, you will stand. 
It doesn't matter if you're facing trouble, pain, uncertainty, tragedy, some kind of brokenness, some kind of memory. Christmas is hard for memories. Some of you are going through the, the holidays without someone for the first time. This is difficult. And you feel it. It's a shadow, perhaps. And it's a struggle. And the devil goes first where your fears are deepest. And he will attack. Don't get me wrong. He's not weak, but he's not strong enough to take you out. If you remain in Christ, doesn't matter if he's waged war on you. You can stand. And we need to stand together. Whatever sin you struggle with, whatever addiction has taken over your life, no matter how many bridges you have burned, the devil isn't strong enough to keep you bound and tied up. Cry out to Jesus, the God who can save you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I've, I've seen this misused too many times, but I'll... The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. And when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so that you can stand, so that you can endure. Now let me tell you, this does not say that God won't give you any more than you can handle. That's not what that says. That's not in Scripture, and that's not true. God will give you more than you can handle on a regular basis. Can you read through any of this and find me many, many people who were given more than they could handle? The point is, if you were not given any more than you can handle, why would you need God? You can handle it. But we are. We have an enemy that's bigger and badder than we can handle. That's why we need Jesus. That's why he comes through. That's why the Spirit ministers among us. That's why the Word is alive and deep within us and it dwells within our hearts and it comes to mind when we need it so that you can endure and stand. Christmas can be a battle. There's no glossing over that. It can be awesome, and it can be great, and it should be a wonderful time. But it can also be a battle. And this version of the nativity gives us a perspective, gives us eyes to see. There's a song called Sing to the King. And just some of the lyrics. He says, sing to the king, he's coming to reign. For his returning, we watch and we pray. We will be ready at the dawn of that day, and we'll join in singing with all the redeemed because Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king. If Jesus is your king, you'll have a battle to fight, but you won't be alone. If Jesus is not your king and you don't know him as Savior, you are kind of fighting on your own. How's that going for you? How you doing? Because normally we think we're doing a whole lot better than we are. If this is a conversation you need to have with one of us today, if you're out there 
on your own, you're in over your head, you need a Savior, we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to pray with you if you need prayer. We're going to stand and sing, but let me pray first. God, thank you so much for your word that gives us hope and a future. Thank you for strength that comes and courage that we know that we're not alone in this battle. That we've been covered by faith in the blood of the Lamb and help us to bear testimony, witness to you and what you've done for us. And we pray that we take that word and we'd shine it in, in just in everyday ways. Just in a way you shine through us. Draw people to yourself. And use things that we do here as a church in powerful ways. Use tonight's journey. Help with conversations that take place and, and bring people closer to you into salvation. We trust you. We lean on you hard. And we're thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.